Let me ask you now to open your Bibles again to Hebrews chapter 11. And today we'll be looking at verses 1 through 7, but the focus of the message is going to be on verse 3 and verse 6. Those are the two verses we're going to look at in some detail this morning. As we're continuing our journey through the book of Hebrews together, today we are looking at um, faith and looking at faith as understanding. Hear now the word of the Lord as we read from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and though and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we do pray as we again open Hebrews chapter 11 that you would speak to us, that you would make it clear that your spirit who inspired this word would illumine our minds and soften our hearts and cause us to give attention to your word in ways that we normally don't. We know that our minds can wander and we can think about a million things other than what's right in front of us, but we pray today that your spirit and your word would capture us and would work deeply in us to bring glory to you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said last week, the entire chapter of Hebrews 11 in the New Testament is all about faith, and we're looking at it uh, for several weeks because faith is a multidimensional thing. Uh, it's not actually giving us in Hebrews chapter 11 what I would call a formal definition of faith, but more of what faith looks like as it perseveres in a hostile context. What real Christian faith looks like. What does it mean to believe? What is faith? And that's what we're looking at. And last week, we mentioned that faith has three layers. Three layers, like a three-layer cake. The first layer, the foundational layer, is that faith begins with understanding. And then that leads to the second layer, which leads to conviction. And then the third la layer is faith completes itself in commitment. Understanding, convi conviction, and commitment. And unless all three of these things are present in a heart, then what you have is not Christian faith. Now starting this week, we're going to look at each one of those elements in turn. Today we're going to talk about the first one. Faith begins with understanding. It begins with thinking. It begins with reasoning. Faith is rational, not irrational. And the two verses that we're going to focus our attention on tell us about that aspect of faith, and it is verse 3 and verse 6. Now why am I doing this? Why am I slowing down and taking your valuable time and more importantly than that, the Lord's valuable eternity, and talking about this in this way. Why am I doing this? Because we live in a very hostile culture, and in case you have been somewhere for the last 50 years and you come back to planet Earth, you would have to realize that our culture no longer accepts as, as its foundational worldview commitments uh, Christianity. 
Uh, we live in a post-Christian culture. We no longer live in Christendom in which all of the major institutions in our culture were somehow shaped and formed by a Judeo-Christian ethic. That's gone. It's gone. And it used to be people would criticize the Christian faith sort of secretly, but now it's out in the open. Now there is an, a public hostility toward those of us who believe. And I think that's only going to increase in time. And so what I'm trying to do is to equip you how to live in the onslaught of this particular moment in culture. How can you live by faith given the present context that we are living in. And secondly, for those of you who are going to the university or are attending school or you have unchristian friends or you belong to different groups that are non-Christian, you hear all the time things that challenge your faith and maybe you don't know how to answer or respond to it. And so today I want you to understand this. This is the fundamental core of what we're going to be talking about for a number of weeks. Christianity as a worldview gives us the best explanation for why things are the way they are, how things can be fixed, so to speak, and how we can have a glorious end rather than the nihilistic leap into despair that we see so much around us. Christianity is the best worldview, the fundamental convictions of Christianity, don't answer every question every person has, but it has far less problems than any other worldview out there. It resonates with the truth. And so as we consider faith this morning, I want you to hear it that way. And so we're going to be talking about some abstract things. Uh, we're going to talk about a little bit of philosophy here and there. But let me beg you to pay attention because it's worth listening to, I hope. That said, faith begins with understanding. It begins with reason. Faith is very rational. In verse 3 of our text, it says this. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. Now, we know in the Genesis account that God spoke into nothing and brought something out of nothing, which is how science often tells us the world was created. We had a big bang. In other words, something came out of nothing and it all started. But the Christian belief is, is that before creation, there was the triune God and that God spoke because he has the power of being. We talk about something called the aseity of God, that God is self-existent. That is that he has the own power to cause himself to be. He's not dependent or contingent or needing anyone or anything else outside of himself, but out of his own will and for the love of his, his own being and person he decided to create a world that would bring glory to him and so he spoke into nothing and ordered the creation out of nothing he has the power to cause everything to be in himself and he did that and so the first three days of creation is a record of God forming the creation the second three days is the record of God filling the creation he had formed and then he created the ultimate uh, aspect of his creation, man in his own image, and placed him in the garden to tend it, to cultivate it, to develop it. And he called it all what? Good. God made a good world. But it is by faith that we understand that. It is by faith that we see that. So let's talk a little bit about what we mean by that. Um, by faith, we think. The Bible tells us that faith is thinking. It begins with thinking. It starts with reasoning. I know this is not a popular conception. The popular conception of orthodox believing Christians in our culture is that we are people who are just stupid. We're deadheads. We're boneheaded. We don't know how to think. Most people make fun of us and say that we are the kind of people who'd rather gather together and believe our little beliefs, but we don't really want to think. We don't sit around and ask any deep questions. We are just the kind of people who accept what we're told. 
They would rather uh, rest on tradition instead of thinking. The Washington Post, not too many years ago, uh, a writer in the Washington Post made a comment about Orthodox Christians. He said most of them were poor, uneducated, and easily led astray. Of course, he apologized for that statement several years ago. He wouldn't today. He would never apologize for that today. But several years ago, he did, but he didn't change his mind. The idea is, if you believe all these things, if you believe all the orthodox, old, classic Christian doctrines, you cannot be a person who thinks. You just want to believe. And so faith in the popular mindset is put over against thinking. And we are here today to see that the Bible teaches not only that faith is compatible with thinking. No, we're not going to settle for that. We're going to say, oh, you can have faith and still think. I told you last week, the first time I ever remember thinking deeply was right after my conversion. It was like, oh my gosh, there's so much going on around me and in this world that I never, ever saw or understood before. And my parents aren't as stupid as I always thought they were. And, and all these people in my life who I thought were numbskulls really do have something to say. Now, what we're going to say is that the Bible says faith consists of, requires, and stimulates the profoundest thinking and reasoning and rationality. You cannot be a Christian without using your brain to the uttermost. In fact, it goes so far to say the reason there's not much faith today, not much faith today, is because there's not much thinking today. Our age is not the age of the meditative man. It is the sprinting, shoving age. Daily new antidotes for contemplation spring into being and leap out at us from store counters. Yesterday I went to Walmart. I hate going to Walmart. It's one of the things I hate in life. But I have to eat. I have to buy food. It's the closest thing to my house. And you see all kinds of humanity at Walmart. So I'm out of the car. I've just been to the gym. I'm walking up to the front door. And there's this couple, a, a, a boy and a girl. They look to me to be late teens, early 20s, two, they could have been models, they could have been on a magazine, beautiful people. But they both were texting, standing, looking at one another, texting with an expression of anger on their face. And I thought to myself, my goodness, are they having a fight by texting? Is this the world I'm living in? It was all I could do to restrain myself from saying, are you deaf or are you fighting? Because I don't know. But the thumbs were flying. Just like, I mean, it's just so fast. And I came back out after I'd shopped to go to the car, and they were standing there embracing one another. So my assumption might have been right. They were fighting through text. That makes me feel so old. You don't know how old I feel. I never thought this day would come, but it's come. See, the average person say, oh, the great philosophical questions. Let's think about Immanuel Kant and his book, Critique of Pure Reason. That great work of his where he said, there are three questions all educated people have to wrestle with and come up with a working answer for if you're going to live a thoughtful, examined life. And those three questions are, how can I know what is real? What ought I do that's right? And what can I hope or live for? How can I know what is real? What ought I to, to do that's right? And what can I hope to live for? See, the questions are, how do I know what is real? How do I decide what is right and wrong? What is it that I should be living for? Now, we are told by our culture from the beginning, from the time we were very, very little, that that kind of thinking is for philosophers, not for regular people like us. Uh, these are for pointy-headed people in ivory towers. The important things are your standard of living. Why did you go to college? Because you wanted to get a degree. Why do you want to get a degree? So I can get a job. Why do you want to get a job? I want to get a job so I can buy stuff. Why do you want to buy stuff? So I can be happy. And you can live your whole life and never ask these three questions. Your whole life. You're caught up in everything else but thinking. If you've ever read the book uh, Amusement, Amusing Ourselves to Death, it's a pretty good commentary on that very thing. So, 
people think about religion and philosophy and all that stuff, and they say, well, how do I know? How do I decide right and wrong? What is meaning? That's not really important, because nobody really knows. That is not doubt on the basis of thinking. That's doubt on the basis of the absence of thinking. A refusal to think. You cannot have a fully orbed Christian faith without a vigorous life of the mind. You remember the first and greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your strength, with all your soul, with all your mind. What? We are commanded to love God with our mind? You ever thought about that? What does it mean to love God with your mind? M-I-N-D, mind. I'm Southern, I hope that got out. Therefore, it's a vigorous life of the mind. Faith consists of and requires and stimulates thinking. You have to use your brain. The passage shows us that thinking leads to faith. Thinking is the basis of faith. Thinking is the foundation of faith. Let's just look at three aspects. Number one, that thinking leads to faith. Number two, how thinking leads to faith. And number three, why thinking leads to faith. One of the things that I often do with people who come to me and express serious doubts is I often say to them, have you ever doubted your doubts? And they look at me like, what planet are you from? Have you ever doubted your doubts? But what I'm asking is, have you ever doubted the basis upon which you stand to support your doubt. Have you ever really doubted your doubts? And most doubters would say, no, I just doubt. I don't, have, I don't think about doubt. And so sometimes doubt is the absence of thinking. But today we're gonna to talk about, now first, thinking leads to faith. That thinking leads to faith. And let's look at the principle sort of in general here. You can't have a real Christian faith without thinking. We are told that in verse 6 where it says, first of all, and without faith it is what? Impossible to please God. For anyone who comes to him must believe that he what? Exists. In other words, you can't come to God unless you believe he is real. And unless you've come to the conclusion that he is actual. There's a bottom layer before you can have a personal relationship with God. And let me put it to you in a rather obvious way. And then let me show you how people are missing out on that, especially in places like Las Vegas. Let's just say you lived um, on a coast and you'd always heard about a remote island. You know, you heard about it. You were intrigued by it. There's a remote island. There's a beautiful island. People have talked about it. I run into people all the time that tell me, you ought to go. You don't just say, all right, I'm going to find it. Let me go get a boat, jump in, and we're going to find the island. No, you don't do that. Hope you don't. First, you research it. You look at maps. You Google. Things that are, you assume are trustworthy. Worthy. You've used them in the past. You've talked to people who've been there before. People you know, people you trust. You do your research and you come to the conclusion that the island is really there. And you learn where it is and then you go. You go to it. Before you go to the island, however, you must believe it exists. And you must know where it is. Any other reproach is very, very irresponsible. So, maybe that's obvious. So I won't go any further with that illustration. But of course, that's obvious. Listen, I'm continually finding people who come to church in a time of crisis, and people will come to Christianity when there's a great need or a crisis in their lives. And they come, and sometimes they come and talk to me, because I'm maybe the most visible figure in the church. So they'll often come to me and say, you know, I'm ready. I want this. Tell me how to meet Jesus. I want Jesus. Now, you've got to understand, to a person like me, that is the greatest thing I can hear anybody say. I'm just ready to jump up and down and have a party with that. But if you talk to them, you see that they do have great needs. And I, of course, know that their needs will be met by Jesus, but more and more I am coming to say, well, let me ask you something. Before you say I want to become a Christian, before you get baptized, before you receive Christ, before you do that, do you know that he is true? Do you know he is true? And I'm finding sometimes people are puzzled by that question. Sometimes they get real quiet before that question. 
Sometimes they're even a little annoyed by that question. They're irked. And uh, one of the ways that they, they say or respond to this is, well, you know, I know it's true for me. You've heard that before, right? It's true for me. I can't speak for other people. I just know it fits me. I know it excites me. Uh, I know it's connecting right where I am. It's true for me. That's all that matters. I can't speak for anybody else, but I know that it's true for me. More and more, I want to say and do say to those people, you cannot skip over what it says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Before you come to him, you, just, you, you must not just think it's true for you. You must think it is true, period. That's what verse 6 says. When a person says, oh, I don't know if it's true, period. I don't know if it's objectively true. I certainly wouldn't want to tell other people it's true for them, but I know Christianity is true for me. That is an alien faith that is not biblical faith. You are importing an alien view of faith into Christianity, and you need to get that out. Thinking leads to faith. Christian faith starts with thinking. Faith has content. It's not enough just to say, oh, I know it's true for me. You also have to know it's true, period. Christianity is true. Not because it works for me, not because it addresses my needs, not because it makes my life better, not because it helps my marriage, not because it helps me be a more responsible citizen and vote the right way. No, Christianity is valid because it's true. It is the truth, capital T. And that's what Hebrews says is supposed to happen. Thinking is to lead us to faith. You have to know it's true. Thinking is the very foundation for faith. Let me show you. Uh, Paul said, we walk by faith, not by sight. He doesn't contradict, contrast faith with reason. He doesn't say we walk by faith, not by reason. That's what people think, but that's not what he's saying. He says we walk by faith, not by sight. He contrasts faith with sight. Let me give you a, an example to see why reasoning and thinking are, in a sense, what faith consists of. Doubt and unbelief are not too much thinking, but too little thinking. A loss of faith is not too much thinking, but too little thinking. Several years ago, I was attending seminary, and I came home every weekend to spend with my family, and I was pastoring a church simultaneously, which is also known as suicide on the installment plan. But I was doing it. And, and we got to the last semester, and I got home that night, and it was a good Friday, and I was invited to preach at a church that wasn't the one I was pastoring. It was one in the community for the uh, Good Friday service. And so I was pretty excited about that, and I went, and I was preaching, and Pam looked at me, and she said, you were white as a sheet. You were pale as a ghost. And that room was freezing, and I was perspiring like I usually do up here. I was sweating like a horse. I was, and I just noticed that I had a little burning sensation right here, right here. And I thought, well, maybe I got an ulcer, you know. So I go home after the service, and I was supposed to stay and eat with the people, but I begged off, said I wasn't feeling well, go home, plop down in the recliner, and I start taking, calling people in our neighborhood and in our church to bring me whatever they had for acid indigestion. And I started eating pill after pill after pill. And I'm laying there, and she can see I'm in pain and also in severe denial. But you know something's wrong when that adrenaline stops, starts pumping and you don't feel right. So I said, well, something's wrong. So I looked at Pam, and she said, what are you going to do? I said, well, at midnight, <laughs> if I still feel this bad, you can take me to the emergency room. Well, midnight came, and I said, let's go. So they took me to the emergency room. And the problem was I was in a rural situation, and the doctor couldn't come and do anything until 5 o'clock in the morning, which means I had to live with the pain until 5 o'clock in the morning. And so about 1 o'clock in the morning, I checked into the hospital. I'm sitting there, and all of a sudden, that pain that was here started to travel, and it moved down to my right side, and it was tender, and it was hurting. And so the doctor comes in. He sees me. He said, well, we're going to have to cut that thing out. He said, it, it's, 
obvious that you have appendicitis. We've run the test. This is a necessary uh, operation. We're going to put you totally out, and we'll get that thing right out, and you'll recover. He said, it doesn't take a lot of skill to do it. I've done it a thousand times. So, you know, I was convinced. I said, well, that sounds good. And um, all of a sudden, the time came for the surgery, and I see people all around me in white coats, and I see this bright light uh, over this table, and the table had straps on it. And I start thinking, what are those straps for? In other words, you start having doubts. Where are your doubts coming from? You start to lose your faith. Why am I doing this? You start to lose your faith. Where are the doubts coming from? They're not coming from new evidence. They're not coming from new reasons. No, they are, as a matter of fact, coming from sight. I was walking by faith. Now I'm losing my faith, not because of reasoning. It's not a faith versus reason thing. Reasoning uh, is what gets us into trouble. No, I'm losing faith because of the sight of the knife. I'm losing faith because it looks much more awful and serious than I thought. So how do I get my faith back in that situation? I think. (laughs) You see, anything other than a a rational faith is often reactionary. We react to what we see. We react to what we see rather than thinking God's thoughts after him. We, but we, have, to, we have to see evidence. Let's say that um, um, the way to renew my faith is to renew my thinking. In fact, my doubts and my fears come from an absence of thinking, just reacting. So, you know, a doctor comes to, say, to you. Let's say you go to the doctor's office. And he comes to you and he said, I want you to know that you have a major heart problem. You're right on the edge. If you eat one more steak, you will die. You believe him. You see the evidence. Other people have told you the same thing. You had a friend die in the same situation. So you have faith in what the doctor says, and you're going to walk by faith. And I'll tell you something, the first time you actually get into the presence of a great big steak, it's not going to feel true. It is not going to feel true. So when people say to me, look, I know it's true for me. That's all that counts. I don't know if it's true for anybody else. I know Christianity is true for me. What's going to happen when things get bad? What's going to happen when God doesn't deal with you in a way that you understand? What's going to happen when your feelings change? It won't feel true for you anymore. Christianity will not always feel true for you because Things that are true, period, don't always feel true. To keep your faith in truth, the truth of something, is to keep thinking about it, to renew your thinking, to say, this stake will kill me. And the sight, it is sight that destroys your faith, not thinking. Oh no, Jesus in Matthew 6 looks at people torn apart by anxiety, who are consumed by worry, And he says to them, O ye of little faith. Then what does he say? What does he say? He tells them how to get faith. What does he say? He says, consider the lilies of the field. What does consider mean? To give thought to, to think about. Look how he takes care of the birds. Now, if you're more valuable than they are, why in the world would God take more care of a lily than you? What Jesus, what's he saying is he says, just believe. No, what does he say? If you want faith, you have to think, you have to deduce, you have to consider. What Jesus is saying, what Paul is saying, what the writer of Hebrews is saying, is that people with little or no faith are people who just react instead of think, are people who let their feelings bludgeon them, people who let their circumstances collar them. Faith is foundational in thinking. It is founded in thinking. Thinking consists of faith. It takes faith to think, and we're going to see, but it takes thinking to have faith. That's very, very important. But how does thinking lead to faith? Now, a lot of people might say, okay, reasoning and thinking lead to faith. How could that be? In verse 3, we have a clue, Hebrews 11, verse 3, but it's a very powerful clue. In short, a tremendously suggestive sentence. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Notice the phrase, by faith, 
we understand that is powerful. Let me show you at least an outline of the way that works. Can't get into all of it, but I'll give you an outline. What it's saying is Christians are people who look at the visible world and say the visible world, the physical world, what is seen is not self-explanatory. Let me repeat that. Christians are people who look at the visible world and see the visible world, the physical world, what is seen is not self-explanatory. That takes a lot of thinking to come to that conclusion. It says, by faith we understand the world, which is visible, did not come from that which is visible. In other words, by faith we start off and say, if there's a God, then the universe makes sense. If there's a God, then the universe makes sense. What I see is explanatory. It's explainable. But if there is no God, and all that there is is matter, and all that there is is the vis visible universe and nothing else but that, it doesn't make sense. Christians are people who have not skipped over and said it's true for me. You have to understand it's true, period. It's objectively true. It's real. How do you get there? The, this way. Christians are people who've looked at the universe, thought about it, have taken plenty of time in reflection, reasoning, thinking, and decided if all that exists is what we can see empirically with our five senses, if all that exists is the natural, it doesn't make sense. Verse 3 actually tells us something very profound. Philosophers of science are now telling us the way in which all knowledge of the physical world progresses is the same the way the writer of Hebrews is speaking of here in verse 3. In other words, philosophers of science say that when a scientist observes a phenomenon, how does the scientist account for it? How does the scientist understand it? The scientist has to say, what causes this? What governs this? That's what it means by an explanation. What causes or governs the thing I'm looking at? The way to find out, say the philosophers of science, is you posit a premise. You pose a theory, and then you try out the theory. You test it out. How do you try out the theory? Does the theory lead us to expect the things that actually happen? Does the theory make sense of it? Let me give you just a little quote. The philosopher of science that I was reading said this, The way scientists decide which theory is the one that is really right and is really true is the theory with the greatest explanatory power. That's the quote. The theory with the most explanatory power. And so the way you understand things is you start with a faith premise. Everybody does. You can't prove it. If you did, you wouldn't have to have a premise. But you start with a premise. You start with a theory. You say, let me try this theory on. And then you look at the phenomenon. And then you try another theory on. And then the one with the greatest faith, the greatest explanatory power, is the one you say, this is the one that explains what I see. This is the one that accounts for it. This is the only one that shows there's a valid cause and a governed. This is the only one that leads me to expect the things that actually happen. Therefore, here's what it means to be a Christian. According to verse 3, a Christian is not somebody who says, Ah, Christianity, the teaching that there's a supernatural God, a personal, supernatural, immaterial God who created all that I see. Christianly, I believe it, not because it's perfectly coherent, not because there are no intellectual problems with it, but because of every other faith premise, every other alternative theory, every other way of trying to understand the universe is far, far less in its explanatory power. It's far worse. It has far more problems, far more contradiction, and far more incoherence. That's where we are in today's world. That is exactly where we are in today's world. And so what, what I'm trying to say in so many words is, when you look and try to give an account for why things are the way they are, some of your accounts don't make any sense. They're not coherent. They don't hang together. 
They don't account for the evidence you're looking at. They don't account. They, they, they can't explain why we have anything. All right, let me, let me jump into this as fast as I can because I only have so much time. And I'm asking you to be patient because you're going to have to think more than usual. I'm not going to be as entertaining as I usually am. All right. You can't prove there's a God, nor can you prove that God doesn't exist. Nobody can do that. Therefore, to doubt that there is a God is to stand on a faith premise and doubt from the position of unbelief. Christians are people who realize the place where you're standing to doubt Christianity is falling apart. The place where I'm standing has problems, granted. The place where you're standing is a disaster. That's why Christians become Christians. Or let me put it to you this way. There have basically always been two faith premises. There is no God, therefore the universe is self-explanatory and ultimate. All that exists is the physical. On the other hand, God created it. So a Christian looks at a person who's standing over here doubting and says, all right, let me ask you some questions. Does your premise have explanatory power? Let me give you a couple of examples. Don't get impatient, but let me show you why. The reason modern people are impatient with these things is we have been taught to doubt Christianity uh, through the absence of thought, not through thinking. We're impatient with the big questions. As Kant says, you can't be an educated person without working your life out on the basis of these questions. We hate that idea. He was right. So listen. First thing, a Christian asks a person who says, Oh, the visible is all there is. The universe is self-explanatory. And the first thing you can say to a person who says that to you, why on the basis of your understanding, on the basis of your view, if there is no God and the world is an accident and therefore all of my thoughts and all of my feelings and everything about me is just the chance collocation of molecules. If everything I think and everything I feel is really explained in terms of chemistry, physical laws, and molecular actions, why be rational? That is the definition of materialism or naturalism. Here you're arguing with me, but on the basis of your view, weeds grow because they're weeds, laws of physics, minds do what minds do. You're acting as if we're free to think about different kinds of ideas, listen to different arguments, and then choose the best one. On the basis of our view, that's impossible. Your mind is just a bunch of atoms vibrating around. You'll do whatever you've been programmed to do. There's no freedom. When you use logic and when you use language, you assume the world is orderly. When you assume there's a uniformity of nature, that means if the fire burns you the first time, it will the second. You assume all these things, but there's no basis in your view for assuming reason works. And so modern philosophers, especially the most influential modern ones like Richard Rorty, people like that say, no, if there's no God, and if this visible universe is all we have, then there is no reason you can trust reason. There's no basis for logical. There's no logical basis for logic. And there's nothing, there's no such thing as anything besides what we see. And to be consistent with that is incredibly difficult. I remember talking to a person one time and we were discussing some things and I said, but what you've just posited to me is a contradiction. And he looked at me and said, contradiction is the hallmark of truth. I said, oh, you mean like one hand clapping? He looked at me and said, yeah. I mean, you, you mean like Jesus had no mother and Mary was her name? And he said, yeah. He said, that's truth. In between those two statements is truth. I said, that's nonsense. That is utter stupidity. You can't live your life that way. You'd be dead just like that. Car's coming? No, the car's not coming. So stand in front of it is what I told him to do. And then you'll know. Why should I trust my mind if it's just the product of evolution? Why should I trust it? The Christian says to a person who is a skeptic, oh, you do trust your thinking, you do trust your reason, though you have no basis for it. 
You have no explanatory power in your view to explain why reason still works and why we know it works. One more reason and then we'll close up pretty quickly. Let me give you a second one. Christian says to a person standing over here, on the basis of your view, you have no ability to speak with any authority about moral obligation at all. You have no way to appeal to people. You have no basis in to work for freedom and justice in the world. I remember at a, a, something called the Cairo Conference, a lot of the nations were saying, Western nations were trying to say that women should have their dignity respected, women should be treated with dignity, women should be given their rights, and what do those nations say? Those are Western values. Now, is there anybody in this room who says that's not a Western value? That's a transcultural value. That's true for everybody. The Christian says, okay. We know some things are always wrong. We know genocide is always wrong. But if this world is all there is, then all the moral feelings are products of atoms and molecules. In the end, everything's an accident. The fact that I feel people should be free is an accident because the universe is an accident. All my thoughts are accident. They're all programmed by chemistry and physics. Again, the most influential philosophers admit if this universe is all there is, there's no reason to trust reason. There's no basis for moral obligation. Finally, after 200 years, the smartest thinkings are realizing if the visible is all there is, there's no basis for reason, no basis for morality or moral objections. You can't criticize Hitler if this world is all it is. Not legitimately. He just did what he was programmed to do. All those molecular collocations in his head caused him to do that. For heaven's sakes, if you're going to hold that view, be consistent. Just be consistent. We do know our thoughts work. We do know some things are wrong. Here's a person over here says, I don't know there's a God, but you go home and you kiss your loved ones as if love was real, but on the basis of your own view, there's no such thing as love. It's just chemical reactions. That's all it is. <laughs> chemical reactions. It can really be reduced to the molecular can really be reduced to physics and chemistry. If your premise leads you to this conclusion, you know is wrong, look at your premise. Have the guts to look at your premise. Look at your premise. And if you say there's no God and this visible universe is all there is, then that's where you are. But you don't have the right to, to impose upon anyone anything. You have the right to hold no one responsible, not even yourself. So there are a lot of people who say, I can live a very full life without Christianity, without religion. But I want to know, full of what? What kind of life is full? It's not a life of integrity because you're not able to take what you believe and apply it to the way you live. There's no integrity. You believe one thing, you act in another way. You're living on borrowed capital from the Christian worldview. The Christian worldview is simply this. God spoke and ordered and created a beautiful, harmonious, glorious creation in which man and male and female were the apex of the creation, the image bearers of God who were called to develop the creation God gave. But they fell into sin. And sin brought disorder. Sin messed everything up. Sin turned everything upside down. It brought into this beautiful, harmonious creation nothing but chaos and depravity. And God, seeing the world was so wicked that the thoughts of mankind were only wicked continually, brought a flood and judged the world and saved one family and started over. But the whole message of the Bible is there's a creation, there's a fall, there's redemption already and redemption not yet. Christ came to usher in his kingdom with a power that reverses the effects of the fall 
in a limited way now, but in an ultimate way when he returns and the world will be a new creation, a new heaven, a new earth, and that's where we're going to live in new bodies. And that's the only hope we got. That's it. And if that's not your worldview, then you're in a world of hurt. And I love you, and I want you to understand that you're in a world of hurt. And you can't explain it. Now, why thinking leads to faith? This is point through three, and we're done. We said that thinking leads to faith. We've seen how it leads to faith. But why does it lead to faith? And here's the wonderful answer. It's in verse 6. The reason it leads to faith, the reason our thinking actually does correspond to reality, the reason that reason works, the reason thinking works is because God who created the world is not just an impersonal force, but a personal being. It says if you want to come to him, him is a personal pronoun, you must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who are earnestly seeking. That's not an impersonal force. That is a person. This is someone who wants you to seek him, who wants you to come into his presence, who wants a relationship with you. Suddenly you realize the only way I can account for the fact that I know love is true and that reason works if the one who created me is not just an impersonal life force, but a person. He made me in his image. And then look at verse 6 a little further. Your thinking leads you to see that there is a God and that he is personal, but then it will also lead you to see if this God who made me and the friendship works is he wants me to have a friendship and the reasons work. He wants me to have love and the reason I do not find out what is right or wrong is because the person behind the universe who cares about how I live, it's only necessary for you, it's only natural to your thinking, that would lead you to want to please your creator. You want to love him. You want a relationship with him. You want to find him. You want to please him because he's God and you're not. And so the Bible tells us, if you don't let your thinking take you all the way to Jesus Christ, you're going to end up in despair, hopelessness. Why? Martin Luther's thinking led him to see that there was a God, and then it led him further along to see that there was a personal God. Then his thinking led him along a little further to see if, this if there is a personal God who is real and true. I want to please him. I want to be in a relationship in which we are pleased with each other and love each other. And so Martin Luther tried with all of his being to obey God's standards, like the golden rule. Just the things that everybody knows instinctively you should do. And the more he felt like, you know, I'm not pleasing God. I am not pleasing God. I can't get there. How in the world can I please this God? And the Bible tells us there is only one way. When John the Baptist baptized Jesus, the Spirit came out of heaven and came down on Jesus. And God the Father said what? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased well pleased the one human being who ever lived a perfect life and pleased God we're told in Romans chapter 8 that when we believe in Jesus Christ we receive the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit comes down and witnesses to our spirit that we are the children of God too and we are well pleasing to him what your thinking will lead you to see that there is a God. It will lead you further to see there's a personal God. Eventually, your thinking will have to take you to this question. How in the world can I please God? And your thinking will lead you to despair if it takes down any other philosophy that's merely theistic and doesn't take you to Jesus. The only one who ever pleased God and who said, I died on the cross, I rose again so that if you believe in me, what I have done accrues to you so that my Father looks at you and is pleased with you in union with me. That's pretty good, isn't it? God's not disgusted with me. He's not repulsed by me. He's not repelled by me. He's perfectly holy, just, and pure. And has no contact at all with anything that defiles or is sinful. And yet God sees me united to his son 
and he's already pronounced over me because I have placed my trust and faith in his son Jesus Christ and I am in union with him by the Holy Spirit I'm connected to him when God says to his son I am well pleased and what Jesus has accrued for us becomes our own then God's well pleased with me God is well pleased with me and you say but you haven't done enough surely I've done so many bad things but it's not not what we're talking about it's not what the Bible says your thinking will lead you to despair if it doesn't take you to Jesus if there's anybody here who does not understand to believe in God means you have to have a sense of personal dealing with him when you pray you're not just saying your prayers but you're having a relationship with him and if you don't see that don't stop until you have that personal relationship it's not enough to believe in terms of thinking you have to let it push you through to a relationship in which you know you please him and that's possible only through the Lord Jesus Christ in fact it's the only religion that ever claims to give you a way to please here and now this great God On the other hand, Christian friends, why are we afraid? Why are we worried? Why are we anxious? You know why? Because we're not thinking. We're not thinking. Jesus said if you have little faith because you're worried, you have little faith because you're afraid, you have little faith because you're bitter, you know why? Don't say, oh Lord, give me faith and sort of expect it to come down abstractly. Get out the truth, look at it, and renew your thinking. And then you will see what God has already said about us. And so, the Christian worldview is the only worldview that gives us a place to stand with dignity, not shame, with righteousness, being right with God forever upon the basis of what our Lord Jesus has done. The answer to too little thinking is not less thinking, but more thinking God's thoughts after him and understanding that Jesus is the only one who can have God declare over us he's well pleased with us. Next time you're up all night worried, struggling, feeling as if you're a million miles away from God, feeling that he doesn't love you, feeling he doesn't understand, feeling that you're not saved, Maybe you ought to start thinking a little bit about what the Scripture says. And as we think what the Scripture says, our minds are renewed with the truth, and we become more and more conformed to our Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text. And this text tells us so much about faith. And the faith that it leads us to doesn't lead us to despair, but to the only hope we have. And the hope we have is a person who lived the life we should have lived but couldn't, who died the death we deserve to die but don't have to. By trusting in him, his righteousness becomes ours as much as if we had lived it ourselves, and his sacrifice upon the cross pays for the sins upon our own head. Now, Father, we pray you would open our understanding to hear this, to know this, to see this, to be changed by this, and to understand that we are your beloved children in whom you are well pleased. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Father, as we continue to worship, may we give as those who are your beloved children in whom you are well pleased. Amen.